this is H Hour. Become a patron of H Hour at patron.charliecharlie1.com and pick up H Hour merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com. Enjoy this episode. Yeah. Welcome back, Grace. Welcome back. Round two after what, two years? Something like that, yeah. Nearly two years exactly. That has flown by. Tell me about it. Sounds like it's flown by more for you than it has for me. But longest two years of my life potentially. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the wait is the wait to come back on the podcast, right? That was it, right? (laughs) Exactly. Two years to collect enough new things to make a whole hour of interesting (laughs) conversation. We were talking before this about CBD, and I mentioned to you. Yeah, we were. So, and and I mentioned to you that just like literally last week. Someone, I, I recommend CBD regularly, and it was someone in the military who I recommended taking CBD to to solve some minor, maybe try it, solve some minor ailments for all its different properties as it has, I'm sure you're going to mention. He said to me, but will I get drug tested for it? Will it come up in a drug test? To which I said, no, but I'm trying to explain it about cannabinoids and THC and all the rest of it, but make sure you get it from a reputable source. Now I'm going to start there. So what is the, so explain to me the properties of PTSD and why, but I think some people think it's a fad, you know, because it's getting pushed so hard online. CBD, the miracle yeah. cure. Absolutely. Um, and I think people probably do think it's a fad and a lot of that comes down to the quality and the potency of products that are available, and the quality and the potency that people are using. But I mean, CBD is a very dirty drug, just to give a, a, little, a little overview, CBD, cannabidiol, is probably the second most well-known cannabinoid of the cannabis plant. The number one being, of course, uh, THC, which is the one that that gets you high, and the one that is picked up on on drug assays, just to go to the the point of of drug testing. So if you you do a drug test, THC is the chemical they're looking for in that. Cannabinoids, explain that term to me, please. So cannabinoid is just uh, a word for... um, molecules of the the cannabis plant majoritively um that are um essentially active uh, at, at different receptors in our body largely the cannabinoid receptors weirdly the plant name named the receptor so we found the cannabis plant and we found cannabinoids within cannabis but we then sort of retrospectively found that we produce our own internal cannabinoids endocannabinoids and we have a whole system within the body the endocannabinoid system i did not know this well new news for you today endocannabinoid system is a regulatory system within our bodies it it largely exists um at sort of um neurons uh, neuronal synapses in order to essentially regulate the transmission between one neuron and another and it does that in a a way that basically stops neurons from becoming overexcited which can be dangerous and can cause them to um, (coughs) then atrophy die away so that's the one of the the primary um, roles of the endocannabinoid system is is this regulatory role within within the brain but it also exists in in the body and in the peripheral system so you know the arms and the legs and um other internal organs and this endocannabinoid system serves to basically have a sort of check and balance on some of the functions that go on to make sure that they kind of don't go over the top in a way that could be dangerous um, or harmful to our tissues so our body naturally produces them 
we release them, you know, in, in a similar way that we release endorphins after exercise, after sex, after food. We release our own natural cannabis within our bodies. But obviously we can consume exogenous cannabinoids so cannabinoids that are synthetic or cannabinoids that are driven from the cannabis plant this is blowing my mind just to clarify something so we discovered them in the cannabis plant first discovered them in the body after yeah which is why they're called cannabinoids that's unfortunate in a way isn't it yeah okay right okay i get it i get it it can be confusing well i think sometimes we have this um perception that we know a lot more than we do and that we know a lot more about the body and we have known for much longer than we have i'm sure at some point in this conversation we're going to start talking about uh psychedelics and psychedelic medicine i think one thing that we're really learning with psychedelics is not as much about psychedelics itself but actually about ourselves um and we don't actually understand how the body works, how the brain works, how consciousness works, how disease is formed in the body. I think we think we've known, and that's where things are dangerous, right? When you think you know, but actually you don't know. And it's very much the case with the endocannabinoid system. Unfortunately, the endocannabinoid system is really very new in modern medicine you spoke, speak to most doctors who've been through a medical degree in in uh, recent years, it's very unlikely that they actually would have had any formal training on the endocannabinoid system, even though we now realise, particularly in psychiatry, how important it is in regulating um, a lot of functions that go on. And therefore, if you get dysregulation of things, that's where you get disease. So if you can't understand what the regulatory role is in the body, then there's a good chance you're missing something important in the disease pathway. Mm. It's one of the most important, we mentioned Mandy Bostwick before we were talking, one of the most important things I learned from her and talking to Mark Gordon was that the the now obvious to me relationship between uh, endocrinology and performance of it, either good performance or bad performance, Mm -hmm. right? And psychiatry, and like how you on the psychiatric way your brain's thinking and yeah working and i'm trying to explain some of them in terms i did before that it was i my set my thought was uh okay you gotta you know you got you got, you got ptsd and then that needs to be solved by a, a talking thing or a psychiatric mm-hmm. sort of solution but obviously what i know now is it's not mm-hmm. just that there's the endocrinological 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 the flipping head more the head the head hormone side of it yeah yeah right? absolutely. head hormones well we're only just realizing and you know <laughs> i struggle with that word all the time <laughs> I'm, a part of a lot of the work i've done in the last few years has been looking a lot at, at women and women's health um but you know the, the same is, is true across all sort of human beings hormones and their effect I think we very much thought, oh, yeah, no, they, they're just involved in making, you know, you have babies and, you know, or making you feel strong and aggressive and things. Well, actually, no, a lot of hormones work as, as neurosteroids. They go into the brain and they affect the way the brain is working. They affect the way that neurotransmitters are being passed across synapses. And that, in turn, and has a downstream effect that results in the way you feel and you behave. And I, that link has not always been very clear. Can we come back to CBD a minute? 
Absolutely. Is that all right? I yes. know, because I know a lot of people have sort of queries yeah. and questions about it and they may, be, may already be using it, maybe not. So uh, I'll kick it off with... Um, I've, I've heard and read that it has very good anti-inflammatory pro- properties. Uh, yes. Micro, addressing microinflammation. Is that correct? Yes. It's proven. So there is good evidence <laughs> that has been shown that CBD has positive anti-inflammatory effects and it's been investigated a lot more in, in recent years in particular cell lines where we definitely see quite a powerful anti-inflammatory. Um, cell lines. Sorry. So basically what happens is when you're doing scientific experiments, you can't just use human beings all the time because it wouldn't be ethical. (laughs) So sometimes what you do is if you want to just test a theory, you can grow like a line of cells that are like liver cells or, um, you know, immune cells or something like that. And then apply whatever it is to that cell instead of applying it to a whole organism. Sorry. Got it. Okay. Understood. Yeah. So, yeah, very much a powerful anti-inflammatory. One of the things that we're realizing, um, particularly in PTSD and another, a number of other psychi- psychiatric disorders, is that you get this sort of um, low-level kind of background information going on in the brain, um, which seems to be contributing to the disorder in some way. CBD also acts as this really good kind of modulator of systems. So I was speaking earlier about sort of the endocannabinoid system, but we have other systems, so glutaminergic system, dopaminergic system, a number of other systems that work in the brain. And CBD appears to have this modulatory effect to it. So similar, as I was saying before, our internal endocannabinoids go around and kind of make sure that we're not getting... Um, you know, too much signaling here or um, that could be damaging. CBD has this modulatory effect on that. A further mechanism of CBD that I'm not sure we fully understand exactly why, but the evidence behind it has been shown is that it also seems to have a positive effect on the ability of the body to recover. So that's the ability of muscles to recover after, say, a very... uh, you know, a huge tab or something where you've, you've put a huge amount of strain on the muscle. The muscle has now been damaged. The muscle now needs to repair. And there's evidence that has been shown through CBD being used by people who've gone through surgeries and uh, also who've used them in um, exercise situations, like I just mentioned, that CBD increases the ability of the body to recover. But they're not sure why. The mechanisms behind it are difficult. When we think about CBD and we look at it as a molecule and we look at where it goes in the body, what it attaches to and what it does as a result of that, it's a very dirty drug. There's many different targets that CBD (coughs) hits. So we know that it's working on the CB1 receptors, which are the ones on on neurons. Um, And that action is a little bit more clearer. But we also know it's working on CB2 receptors. Well, they're on immune cells and they're all over the body. We don't fully understand what it's doing there. And then there's a whole list of other receptors that are involved in inflammatory pathways, that are involved in pain pathways, where it is having, and are involved in pathways to do with the endocannabinoid system as well, where it's having further effect that all combined together has these kind of outcomes of reduced inflammation, improved recovery, um, improved sort of functioning in certain areas of the brain. 
the exact sort of linear point from CBD in to, to outcome out is, is not crystal clear at this moment in science, but we are moving at a rate in science and, and in discovery around plants and plant me- medicine, particularly in cannabis and CBD, that all of this is sort of being further proved you know, literally by, by, by the publication that is coming out on a monthly basis. And what about uh, evidence or research that shows its impact on, well, one's anxiety, but two is epilepsy. I've read a lot of things about its impact on epilepsy. Yeah. Okay, so that's a whole different thing, and it's actually the only the only thing that is a licensed medicine in this country for um, treatment with CBD is uh, a very rare form of childhood epilepsy, for which a very very pure high potent level or a, a <coughs> pure high potent CBD is used. I actually believe for epilepsy, the best thing is full spectrum cannabis. That's THC, that's CBD, that's the lot. The reason for that is that THC has a very powerful inhibitory effect at the neurons. Now, what happens in epilepsy is you basically get a huge amount of dysregulation happening at a particular area in the brain where you get what's sort of described as almost a, you know, an activation overload. So the neurons are, are firing when they shouldn't be firing, which are causing neighbouring neurons to fire, which causes people to then have what we classically think of with epilepsy, which is the, the seizures and the fits. So what's happening is you're having a kind of a storm happening in a certain part of the brain. CBD is able to, like I say, modulate that, have a check, a check on the, the um, firing at the synapse that's going on. THC... I believe does that in a much more powerful way. If you look at the difference in these young children who are up until the moment they're taking cannabis cannabis medicines, having upward of 100 seizures a day, and they go down to maybe two. I thought it was just CBD they were taking. So so how do you administer the cannabis to a child? So you can... There's there's vaporizing devices that are very effective, but you can also make full-spectrum oils from cannabis plants. Really? Um, Yeah, but unfortunately, it's very difficult to... Really going to get into... (laughs) It's very difficult to license a medicine like cannabis because every cannabis plant looks a little bit different from the cannabis plant next to it. It's made up of, you know, 140 different cannabinoids, of which there probably are more we don't understand. All these different terpenes, which are smaller molecules <coughs> to do with flavour and other things, that may be, may be important, may not be important. Every plant is going to have a different profile, and so when you're trying to licence that as medicine, it's quite difficult um, to get a standard. So what it means is we have these off-licence CBD, uh, cannabis whole plants that are available which are then not properly regulated not properly formulated at times um for for people to take them that we are getting a lot better at at that and we are we do have them available in this country and you don't need to just be epileptic to get a full spectrum cannabis prescription in this country you can go to a um a specialist doctor and, and get it licensed for for a number of of things 
So what is that? That's vapes they, they would give you in that case. They will have a consultation with you about what oh, you think okay. is is well, the most appropriate thing for you. Mm. There is. I, I don't want to get into a, a kind of conversation that goes down the, the route of uh, whether or not we should be giving out whole flower cannabis to people because it looks and it feels and it smells and it smokes a lot like the stuff that you would buy from a dealer on a street, you know, on black market cannabis. But they're different. Well, yeah, because you got it from a doctor on a prescription. Oh, okay. But the, yes. the, the, actual, the actual thing itself probably isn't really that different if, if we're honest with ourselves. But there are products out there that are formulated where people are creating <coughs> these full-spectrum full oils. But those are prescription medicines those are, that are prescribed by a doctor for a very specific disorder. Whereas what we wanted to talk about here was CBD. And I think the point that I would really like to you know, bring it back to what we were Let's originally get back into the trying safe to zone. say. Into the safe zone. <laughs> so yeah. The one thing I think I think that, you know, full spectrum cannabis for, you know, <clears throat> epilepsy, the evidence is there. It's it's pretty phenomenal. Um, I know that, you know, there's a lot of, of, of minds brighter and wider than mine that have been put to the idea of how do we kind of bring this to um to use in in the uk but as far as cbd cbd is completely legal it is a non-psychoactive substance but it has been living in a strange gray area for which there has been a tiny amount of clarification by the government unfortunately it hasn't been done with uh i think enough careful thought and respect for people in the industry who might have spent some time thinking about this but the Home Office has now come to an agreement. Essentially, when you get CBD, you have to get it from the cannabis plant. And you normally get it from the hemp plant, which has a lot more CBD in it than THC. But it does have some THC in it. So you must then distill the product down so that it's within the legal limits to not have too much THC in it. That limit has been debated back and forth. And it's all now hung on this strange idea of what is a serving of CBD? Because there is an agreement from the Home Office um, that you can now have 50 um, nanograms of THC in one serving of CBD. But a serving of CBD has now been suggested to be 10 micrograms instead of 70 micrograms. Long story short, the amount of THC that the Home Office has gone firm on is strangely going to be higher than the amount that was previously sort of being proposed by the industry. Because they've adjusted the CBD serving size, but not the THC. They've adjusted the CBD service size, service yeah. size okay. down, and they've now gone firm on this per serving. But, but what's the THC. serving? Is it one drag of a vape pen? Mm. Is it you know, one uh, drink of, of CBD, how many of them are you going to have per day? It's unclear. So the reason I'm saying this is there's a lot of CBD products out there. The quality of them is not equal. There's a lot of moves in the industry to try and make that better. There are industry um, organisations who have come together to try and set a standard and ensure that 
the CBD products that are for sale in this country are meeting that set standard. And I would advise anybody who is planning on using a CBD product to do a bit of research on, you know, how um, how that product has been produced, where the, the certificate of analysis has come from, where it tells you what's in it. <coughs> but the reason I'm boring you with all of this is because if you never have to take a drugs test and actually the idea of having a bit of uh, THC and some kind of entourage effect of the other cannabinoids and terpenes is what you're looking for, then great. But if you are bothered about that and you are bothered about having THC in your system, at the moment, if you take um, a CBD product that has a small amount of THC in it, give it a couple of weeks and I wouldn't be surprised if you start coming positive on a it, on a if you're taking test. a cbd regularly because yeah okay. if you're taking a, a, an oil that is you know 98 percent proven cbd and you know people out there might say oh that's absolute bollocks that's not true well i've seen results from clinical trials that have gone on where they've done pk data on people who've been taking a you know very high potency cbd oil for a particular duration, and by the end of the trial, they were showing positive for THC. So, okay, now, all right. So on that, just on that subject. So, how, as a military serving person who would think they'd benefit from taking CBD to treat whatever, uh, do we know of any recommended or safe retailers or places sources to go and get CBD? I'm not asking you to give in. Well, if you do know of any, and you can, if not, how how can I actually, uh, there's one that comes to mind in this country, which is a company called Brains Biocutical. They are at a slightly higher end price point, and that's because they do an extra distillation process to their products. So they are super pure. They are 99.0% CBD. So they are very, very pure. That's not to say that Brains Biocutical are the only one out there doing this. There's definitely others. They're just the only one that is currently in my brain. Lucky for them today. Um, I, I'm sure that if you if you go online and the key point is to look for the purity of the product, and the purity of the product that is backed up by a certificate of analysis, which is basically your report from the lab, that is reputable, <laughs> that isn't you know been fudged or the, or whatever. Oh, yeah. um, Unfortunately, we don't have a good system of tracking it. I have worked with a number of groups, um, you know, the ACI um, and, and others to try and come up with a way that we can have almost like a kite mark for CBD in this country. So that if you are, say, um, a, a serving, um, serving member of, of the military, you can go and buy a CBD product that's got some kind of kite mark on and know you're safe. Whereas we don't have that at the moment. So if anybody from the government is listening, do do engage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, okay, cool. Good. I'm glad we covered that subject. That's good. That's good. Um, well, interesting, especially on the, car the cannabinoids front, producing them ourselves. That's an iron. Uh, well, we actually produce um, psychedelics ourselves. We produce our own internal DMT version of yeah. DMT. Yeah, it's there's a very interesting theory around uh, psychotropic plants and this idea of 
did we evolve around them or did they evolve around us? Because there's so many synergies between their active compounds and our receptors. I'm not sure I have any more thoughts on it than that, but it's an interesting theory. Who's controlling who? Maybe this is all just psilocybin mushroom trying to make its way around the world by yeah, convincing us we've seen God. Especially you consider things like mycelium and all the rest of it, right? Exactly, it gets right? It's a bit wild. It gets a bit wild. <laughs> when you think that everything is just an organism trying to spread its genes as far and wide as possible, and that's its only intent, maybe they Sounds are quite sinister. <laughs> They're just making it like a nice experience, aren't they? It's actually exactly. quite sinister. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's been going on with you? What's been going on with you in the last two years? So, yeah, so it's been a really, really busy couple of years for me. I think when we, we last spoke, I had literally just fallen out the back of, the, <laughs> of Sandhurst. Um, and about to start on, on my reserve, reserve uh, career alongside the work I've been doing um, with, with veterans. Are you warm enough? Perfectly warm enough. As I was going to say, am I warm enough? I'm warm enough now, but... <laughs> As we get the subject of Brecken, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, since I've seen you, I've, I've probably had some of um, some of the most vivid <coughs> hallucinatory experiences myself, most of them on the Brecken beacons at 4am, slowly coming in and out of... Have you hallucinated with tiredness? Have you done Absolutely. That? Crazy, isn't it? It Cra- is incredible. Crazy. It's incredible. And it really, really shows you um, <clears throat> what happens to the brain when you deprive it of sleep like that and how important sleep is. And it, it, it's literally the, you know, parts of the visual cortex malfunctioning and parts of almost the, our brain needs to sleep for a reason, right? We don't just go unconscious and start hallucinating for eight hours a day for no reason. There's the reason that we're doing it. And it's because the brain needs to go through a set of processes. And if you don't actually allow it to do that, it will just start taking it. Interesting. Even you when you're awake. You describe <laughs> dreaming as hallucinating. Well, it is. I wouldn't have put it in that category. Okay, how would you describe dreaming? Dream. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't have said it was hallucinating based on the fact you're not conscious. You're Do you need to be conscious to hallucinate? Well, I thought so, but maybe I'm rethinking that right now. Is dreaming not part of your consciousness? <laughs> yeah. Are you beyond a conscious state when you're dreaming? Uh, oh, God's <laughs> sake. God's sake. Maybe not. It depends on the definition of consciousness, know, right? right? And it goes back to the sleep hallucination, the, the, the waking hallucinations. This show is brought to you by Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan. Since Joe's death, Rugby for Heroes have raised in excess of £125,000 for military charities. And they've been doing this year in, year out, by organising fundraising events themed around rugby, beer and gin food, live music, and great people. They regularly hold events, and you can expect soon for a supper club to be added to their calendar. Their most recent event was a beer and gin festival held in Old Leventonians RFC in Leamington Spa, the home of Rugby for Heroes, 
and a club who recognise, as many others do, the huge impact that Rugby for Heroes has, not only on the military community, but also on the local community. You can keep up to date with what Rugby for Heroes are doing by following them on social media at Rugby Number Four Heroes, Rugby Four Heroes, and get onto their website, RugbyForHeroes.org. I strongly suggest you do get to their events, and I will see you at the next event. I've been to every single one of their events since I discovered Rugby for Heroes, and quite frankly, since they supported me through very difficult times. So I hold them very close to my heart. And I'm very appreciative of their support, as are many other HR fans who have been touched in different ways by Rugby for Heroes over the years. Rugbyforheroes.org. It staggers me that I was able to have those yeah. in such vivid, like this is actually real and actually happening, and then 10 seconds later snap out of it and go, oh my God, I was totally convinced some of, was going on. Some of the most intense um, hallucinatory experiences I've had described to me and I've had one or two described to me have been from from people who are telling me about hallucinations they had on week three of X exercise when they <laughs> but what's it. causing it right so we is, is it that do we know is it the release addition is that release of, of some of the psycho psycho what do you call it? psycho it's, psychedelic psychotropic <laughs> substances in the body that release like the MT potentially potentially well, we're not sure um, and it, you know it may very much be us I, I'm not sure we're, we're, we are very clear on exactly what's going on when we hallucinate from sleep deprivation but it's probably as i say some way of our brain needing to go through some of the processing that we do when we're asleep and as not having been asleep our brain just starts having to go well we just have to do it while we're awake then and starting to go through Mm. some of that processing potentially there's some kind of survival mechanism in there maybe there is something involved in us releasing some kind of hallucinatory molecule that that I'm unsure of and thirdly I think there is some evidence of you are just sort of malfunctioning by that point you are so low on neurotransmitters and energy that your brain is kind of glitching when you're in that state and it's really funny because coming on to sleep one thing I've really done in the last few years is learn how important sleep was you know, and part of that has been through my own experience um, of going through, um, going to Brecon and going on a few exercises where sleep deprivation has very much been the order of the day and is very much held up as a badge of like honour, right? How long did you stay awake for? How little sleep did you get in this situation? And how much sleep is actually important to us, I don't think is, has been properly understood and, and properly um, given its credit. There's not one single mental health disorder that I'm aware of that does not present alongside some kind of disturbance in sleep. How much sleep is a cause or an effect in that is still not very well known. I think it is a huge amount on the causal side of things. Um, Yeah, and in terms of the way that we think about sleep in in the military, I think it's really, really important that we... um, go through those opportunities where we practice what it feels like to be sleep deprived and what it feels like to uh, have to operate under those conditions. But I don't think it needs to be the standard state in which we make people live in the army where they're permanently sleep deprived because there's every evidence 
that it is a huge contributing factor to the development of all sorts of mental and physical health disorders. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I know that. Um, I think in that badge of honour of sleep deprivation, all that, as opposed to trying to get to situations where you're, you're enabling the need to stay up longer, be awake longer. I think that's not the case. It's more, like, I think the military is probably one of the places where they do understand more than most others the importance of rest. Yeah, you know, you know yeah. the one thirds, two thirds rule yeah. in terms of when you're doing your your planning, you you allocate, you make sure you allocate a certain proportion of time. Most of the time, you allocate in terms of between now and the the time of the battle or the action you're going to mm-hmm. do. Most of that time gets given to your teams, your sections, mm-hmm. whatever units to do their prep and make sure they get rest. Um, but I think that's important. It's important to kind of hammer that home. I think societally, we, we don't put any importance on sleep. We don't realise how important it is. Um, and you're right, the military is one of those places where enforced rest is a thing, and very rightly so. Um, enforced rest? I'd forgotten that term. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> enforced rest, yeah. <laughs> Go to bed. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, but I mean, because of why was enforced rest brought in? Because people would driving home after these long exercises and having horrendous car accidents mm. because your body will get to a point where it just takes sleep and you must have like you say you must have had it yourself wait how many micro naps have you had on your oh I, on your scope i crashed an m25 <laughs> i crashed an m25 double tapping in, in my in my head i was in a traffic jam with a car full of guys we were all in uniform as well but we were crawling but I literally, I shut for a split second and I woke up and I was in front, in the back of the next car, in the back of the car in front. There was no injuries and their car wasn't even scratched. But I've done it. That was years ago. Years ago. When I was a, you know, young, a young lad. But yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Um, the sleep side just fascinated me. I mean, that's a whole other topic. But the importance of sleep, I think. There's a book I read about it. I can't remember the guy who wrote the book. All about sleep and the research there is. Is, and it, the evidence is he called there is. Matthew Walker and is the book called Why We Sleep? That's one. Yeah, that's the one. Um, I think it's the only book that's well known for sleep, yeah. right? Yeah, that one. Brilliant <laughs> book. And uh, I think when I when I started listening to that, I was I was someone who was okay, I can do I can easily operate on four, five, six hours sleep, no problem. And that's what I would do, four, five, six hours of sleep a night, just routinely. I go to bed late, I wake up early because I'm an early riser. Mm-hmm. I go to bed late because I was being lazy in managing myself. Mm-hmm. And then when I read his, it was like, okay, ideally you're looking at six to eight hours, but really you want eight hours. You want like, eight, you know, if you're sort of 25 to sort of 45, 50 and you're, you're regular exercise and all of that kind of stuff. Well, just living, you should look for eight hours ideally. And then I started forcing myself initially to get eight hours of sleep. And I definitely talked about this before on the podcast. And the first night I did it, I woke up the next day and I was like a different human. I thought, I thought, oh my God, I'm like, I am elevated. I've only had an extra couple of hours of sleep. And I was elevated to a, like a uh, a position of, I was, I was not, you know, like giddy and happy. I just thought I am definitely more positive, more elevated than I was yesterday. And yesterday I thought I was on the ball. Extra two hours sleep, different person. I call it eight hour Hugh now. Eight hour Hugh uh-huh. is a different beast. But you easily forget that thing. Uh-huh. Because you can do six hours and be okay. But the difference that two hours makes, oh my God. Uh-huh. Huge, huge. Yeah. I mean, you have to think of it as that it's an opportunity for you to go through the processes that your body needs to kind of reset, to go and heal and, you know, put things back where they belong and sort of do the processing that is required. You know, it, unfortunately, it's going to make nobody commercially happy that the, the things that actually impact us most in our in our life and can make us healthier is 
getting better sleep, getting better food and getting better exercise. You know, it's not no, no magical cure, no magical potion, those three things. Sleep, food and exercise are the fundamental blocks to how we feel and how we are in terms of our mental and physical health. <laughs> on this on the right on the psychedelics front of the last couple of years what have you been involved with what what yeah. what major changes or progress so the, has the been? world has come an awful long way since i last spoke to you i think you know we were certainly in the in the sort of mist and midst of it when i last spoke to you in that there's an awful lot of good evidence but it was sort of small and pockets in terms of what psychedelic medicines can do for treatment of mental health conditions and mental health conditions, particularly in a military population. Now, two years on, we're a hell of a lot further down the line. I was at a conference in America in June, which was probably the largest conference that's ever taken part in in the name of psychedelic medicine, by a company called MAPS, which maybe some of your listeners would have heard of. Um, They've been around for a long, long time, and they have just now released their findings from their second phase three trial. So just a quick run through. If you're going to license any kind of medicine or treatment, you have to first do phase one, which is what does this look like in human beings? Then you have to do phase two, which is are we seeing any kind of signal that this works in human beings and at what dose does it work? And then you have phase three, which is in a large enough population, can we prove without doubt that this works? And then you need to do that twice. So can we prove that this works without doubt twice? And then the regulators will say, yes, that works. You can license the medicine. MDMA, which is not quite a psychedelic, but it's um, it works in a similar way. So on serotonin receptors, it may be more um, known to, to listeners perhaps as <laughs> in its party form. It's it's the main consistent uh, component of, of ecstasy pills. I thought it was a psychedelic. Yeah. I thought MDMA so was a psychedelic. It, it, it is and, and it isn't. So it's not what we would call a classic psychedelic just because the mechanism of action is <coughs> rather different. So um, I, Go on. effectively a, a psychedelic works in a, a way that it kind of works at particular receptors to cause serotonin receptors and a whole bunch of different serotonin receptors as, as, as well as others again a very dirty drug that works in a number of different ways but it causes this sort of downstream effect which is uh, can be more hallucinatory so more of that visions etc etc whereas with mdma it's less of that hallucinatory effect and what it does it kind of causes more of your own neurotransmitters to be present so it's less having an effect itself at, at the receptor. It's more causing more of your own stuff to be having an effect. So you get less of the hallucinatory effect, but you do get all of the um, increased sort of feeling of empathy, reduced fear, all of this stuff. So MAPS has had this program going for a number of years where they would give people MDMA alongside um psychotherapy so what would happen is you would go through a program of 10 psychotherapy sessions and for a number of those sessions and four maybe you would take mdma whilst you were having the therapy they then completed their second phase three trial in people with ptsd and the results were overwhelmingly positive 
That means they've now got enough evidence in hand to go to the FDA, the American Drug Licensing Body, and say, okay, we want to license that. And they should be able to. And, and it probably will happen in the next year or so. Another thing has happened in this country for, for major depressive disorder, where the second phase three trial is undergoing, as we speak, at the University of Oxford, using psilocybin, which is a component of the magic mushroom, for uh, major, major uh, depression. And again, the evidence is astounding. The work that I have been doing in the last two years since I last saw you, Heroic Hearts, which is the charity that I'm the research director of, and, and I, I hope the reason you have invited me here today, <laughs> Keith, um, has been sending out military veterans from America, the UK now. I don't think we had sent any from the UK last time I spoke to you, and Canada, and we've taken them down to ayahuasca ceremonies in Peru or psilocybin ceremonies in Jamaica or the Netherlands. And from the research we've collected from them, so doing a, a standard baseline before, covering a whole bunch of different behavioral um, and psychological aspects to do with anxiety, depression, sleep, quality of life, well-being, chronic pain. We then put them through the whole process. We prepare them to go with coaches. We send them down to the retreat center. They go as groups, which is very important and we can come to in a minute. And then they come out, they do an integrative piece with their coaches, and then we test them again for, on all of these different measures. And the results I have seen are astounding. Let's come back a second, just a bit. We spoke at length, by the way. And the first time you came on was all about psilocybin. It was like, ah, no, 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 no. It was psilocybin ayahuasca. And we, we, yeah. I'm sure, we'll come back onto it. But um, just come back a second. So on the M MDMA treatment you were talking about in the US and the research, and also on the, the psilocybin, no, 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 yeah, so that was PTSD, and then psilocybin that's gone on at the University of Oxford, or either way. Right, so the MDMA impact on PTSD and, and that research, you said it was mm -hmm. a very positive impact, incredible. Yeah. What were the impacts? So basically, funny enough, I just looked at the paper yesterday, so I might even be able to get the statistic out of my brain for you. Um, <laughs> something help. like 67% of people who went in with a diagnosis of PTSD no longer had a diagnosis. Of what were the symptoms they were presenting though? This was a wide study of, um, I think it was over 300 people per study oh, in two okay. different studies. So these were people who were presenting with um, PTSD. <coughs> Within that was a separate cohort of, of military veterans. So there are military veterans who've gone through this. The reason I mention that is something I think is important that um, military PTSD, I, I think sometimes it does look and feel a bit different from other PTSD and it often looks a bit different when it comes to just treating PTSD in general often because it can be a bit more complex in its uh, manifestation. Potentially involved the TBI side of things as Potentially well. Potentially TBI is yeah. involved yeah. you know and people being under these sort of chronic stressful situations for very long periods of time etc etc but <clears throat> essentially the population that, that they, they, have, they have solved for is people with a diagnosis of PTSD as defined by the Psychiatric Handbook of Diagnosis for <laughs> Disorders, which may or may not be as gospel as we want it to be. But 
it is the the measuring stick by which medicine works so you know do you meet x diagnosis so everyone in that trial will have met the diagnosis for ptsd and then will have been tested again for the for, for that following the treatment um of which far more than we see with the gold standard of treatment which is uh, you know six week cognitive behavioral therapy course normally we're seeing much more make more meaningful improvement with this mdma now the question is what about with psilocybin or ayahuasca or ibogaine is, is getting huge traction with the work that's being done in veterans and ibogaine at the moment ibogaine is another psychedelic plant that's from from africa just is it yeah i thought it was a drug as in a manufactured drug ibogaine i've heard the name loads of time but it sounds like something you'd buy from some pharmaceutical no, company. No, I hate, I hate to break this to you. It's a psychedelic that's uh, <laughs> plant-driven. No, no, yeah. no. Okay, yeah. right, okay. Um, so, and I've lost train of thought. Yeah, so whether or not MDMA is going to be better, worse than other psychedelic treatments, like psilocybin, ayahuasca, that's not super clear. The one thing that is really clear is that all of these treatments are having profound effects. Since I last saw you, Keith, one of the things I have been able to do Keith, Keith. Sorry. Keith. I'm not Keith Abram. I don't even look like him. (laughs) (laughs) That's because we mentioned him earlier. Go on. Sorry, Keith. (laughs) It's because we mentioned Keith earlier. Um, Of course it is. And now I have lost my train of thought. So the... The, the profound effect that, that we are seeing, since I last saw you, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to obviously spend a lot more time with um, people in the military and people who have left the military and people who are now going through these retreats because often I go down and collect field re- research sort of on the ground at these retreats <coughs> or I will be involved in, in, in some way in, in speaking with people who've been through the process. Often it's my job to get up and be boring and do the science alongside the the interesting story that someone tells about about their own healing and what you see in these people from the stories they're telling you and the people the human beings that they are on day one when they enter into the retreat program and they enter into the this journey of healing right and they are very very often very troubled human beings um, with a lot of internal conflict that very, very often has nothing to do with their time in the military. Very often, it's who they were when they turned up at the door of the military and they were able to pack that away in a bag and put it away for the entire time they were in the military. And then they get out and that, but they have to open that bag up and go, oh God, this nightmare still exists. And those broken human beings who have become incredibly blunted <clears throat> to the world, they're blunted emotionally to their families, very blunted to themselves most of them have incredibly poor relationships with themselves and then i see them a week later or a month later and the difference is incredible i can sit here and chat on about how proud i am of of like how much research i got or what publication i made or etc etc but the thing i'm most proud about in the last few years of work that i have done has been looking into the face of some of these veterans and them telling me, oh my God, I think I've just remembered what it is to feel. I can't wait to go home and 
hug my daughter and hug my wife now understanding what it is to to feel love for them what it is to understand i literally had a conversation recently with someone who um and it's a common thing but it's someone who's he's a close friend and uh going through a difficult time again going through a difficult time and i don't know i suppose you could just you would describe yourself as someone with chronic chronic ptsd uh and a and diagnosis of a tbi but one of the things that impact the thing the main thing that impacts him is he doesn't he doesn't feel he doesn't Mm -hmm. feel and he and you know if you're a a family guy with a wife and kids and you some and it's not okay to be like that so it means you have to put on feeling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you also know it's wrong you know and 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 he struggles with that. And, and then there's guilt around that. Exactly. Why don't yeah. I feel? Why am I not finding this moment impactful when everyone else is? And there's a cognitive toll of pretending to care, pretending to feel. A lot of the presentation of military PTSD is apathy, it's dissociation, it's depersonalization, it's feeling like you're not living in the world around you. That and you know psychedelics bring people back into that moment so fast and so profoundly it's completely and utterly mind-blowing and it's very difficult i think for people to understand who you know perhaps are still in it you know for people who are still very much in it themselves to understand why anyone would want to use psychedelics, why this medicine might be in any way useful or impactful. Why, when we talk about psychedelics, we don't just talk about, well, the physiological measures show that we improve functioning and blood markers and da-da-da. Why, when we talk about psychedelic medicines, we talk about people gaining insight, people getting this emotional connection back, people having these mystical experiences. And that's often because as a society, we don't really value those things. And because a lot of people in our society who we look up to as the psychiatrists and the, the leaders of, of, of military, et cetera, et cetera, probably have a problem with this themselves. It's a problem with that generation. Right? It's a problem with that generation. It's, just, it's, not, it's not a problem that they're, they're deficient in something. It's just that that's their understanding. We're sort of in the middle, I'd say. You know, I definitely grew up, and until probably until the conversation with like the likes of yourself and Keith, the actual Keith, not the me, actual, Keith, Keith, the actual yeah. Keith, and Heroic Hearts, and also Tara Austin, yes, um, who I interviewed recently. Because of those conversations, my understanding of the positive application, like justifiable application and consumption of psychedelics, psychedelic compounds, uh, um, is legitimate. You know, legitimate, mm-hmm. and it's not all about uh, taking this stuff to go and have a good time. There's, you know, there's actual good use. Oh, and it isn't a good time. The idea, oh, yeah, ask the idea that you idea. are down there in Peru having a party <laughs> is is completely the opposite. It's work. It's psychological work you have to engage in, <clears throat> and taking part in. So, say you are a veteran out there now in the UK who has been struggling with your your mental health and you know often sometimes that looks a bit like full-blown PTSD but sometimes it's not quite that maybe you've got a bit of 
um, the dissociation. But, you know, perhaps you're thinking, well, nothing really, really bad happened to me in one instance, so it's not PTSD or this, that, or the other. But you just generally have these feelings of, um, you know, anxiety and uh, depersonalization and lack of sort of emotional feelings. And you want to get that back and you you want to get to sort of uh, a position of health and wellness and you want to engage in this process then you kind of have to engage in it as a full process and that starts from the moment you decide I am going to do this I'm going to go through this it goes through all of the preparation be that going down doing ayahuasca and having to go on a strict diet or for you know any other psychedelic process going through the preparation with a coach or um, some kind of mentor then when you're in the experience and you're there and taking the medicine often it can be an awful lot often you're going through the processing of traumas or you know things that have happened to you in your past or things that didn't happen to you quite often in your past and that is a very uncomfortable place to be sometimes, a very uncomfortable place to sit and sometimes stare in the face reality that you've probably been shutting away in a box for a long, long time. You then have to come out of the process and integrate that somehow. You can't live in the jungle for the rest of your life with your newfound insights, staying away from the Western world. You need to come back to your home and your family and your friends and your job and you need to integrate what you learn and what you saw and what you felt into your life that whole process from start to finish is a couple of months and it's a couple of months that you do actually need to apply yourself to so you know word of warning for anyone who thinks this will be a quick weekend away that is not where we see impactful um progress in people who do well in these programs the people who do well in these programs understand this is hard work and it's not five minutes it's it's two months to get a shove out the door and then it's the rest of your life working on it. But that's what it should be, right? Your whole life, you should be working on being the best version of yourself. At no point are you, you know, done. <laughs> yeah. What's, uh, what's the progress towards um, rescheduling of uh, any of the drugs that you mentioned? You're in the, in the UK. Well, I'm sure Tara would have been able to uh, <laughs> yeah, she give you all the good news. Yeah, she, uh, what did she talk about? There was um, a conceit... I'm trying to remember the specific. <laughs> I think we talked about psilocybin rescheduling. Yes, yeah, so wrong. she has been part of a very um, interesting campaign in this country to basically look at using psilocybin here for um, in a compassionate use case. And there's argument to say that the veteran population is a compassionate use case. Suicides among the veteran population are astoundingly high in my mind using something like psychedelic medicine as a last resort are they in is that correct so well, are there conflicting things in america oh, okay america it, right. it's something outrageous like a veteran takes their life every 21 minutes or something. yeah now i i I was going to say playing devil's advocate, yeah, but it's not not what I'm doing. I remember Mercer Mercer saying something. Johnny Mercer, yes, yeah. Mercer saying that the suicide rate amongst veterans is equivalent. No, it's less than the suicide rate amongst the general civilian population. You in the UK? I don't know if that's correct or not. But what the that what what he's saying there is there isn't some unusual suicide rate in the in 
UK armed forces compared to. We are much better. We are much better. Than, I'm not dismissing than the, US. the fact that people kill themselves and shouldn't that. I absolutely agree with. It. We we are much better than the US, but we definitely have a problem with PTSD and untreated PTSD yeah. within people that come out yeah, of yeah, our yeah, forces yeah. and. Um, and also, let's just remember we, you know, are a num. We, we may at this moment in time uh, have that statistic, but we've not been engaged in the way that we were in previous years. Mm. So, yeah, basically, what people have been trying to do is look at the idea that we could use psilocybin mushrooms. Um, in this country, in a similar sort of psycho uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy um, model, and the group that sort of were, were doing that put a question forward uh, via, via the means that one does to Parliament in order for it to be debated, and it alongside all of the evidence that I've now kind of mentioned to you, which is a huge number of publications that have come out in peer-reviewed scientific journals showing the evidence of this really working of it being very safe of there really not being very many adverse reactions to it when it's done in this way it's an, it's an incredibly safe uh, molecule when it's used properly in the right people but the government just spanned straight back around and said uh, we we don't see any any uh, enough enough of a, of a movement in the science for us to feel we need to review this in any way. Thank you, goodbye. Um, and sort of refuse to engage. But am I surprised? No. So I'm not going to say any more about the government no, and what fine, I think about it, but I, you know, I think, to, like I mentioned earlier, we have a situation sometimes where the powers that be within our medical systems and our military systems perhaps aren't the wellest themselves because they're not able to sort of see the wood for the trees. I think if you apply that to the government right now. Yeah, lots of things. Um, what about major major risks with any of the any of what we talked about? I mean, you've got, I mean, risks to health, right? Mm-hmm. You got, you mentioned CBD, and I'm pretty sure there's nothing major there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned ayahuasca, you mentioned MDMA, you mentioned psilocybin. When I say, when I'm talking major, I mean like above a, sort of above a certain percentage likelihood of impacting you in a bad way. Yeah. Side so effect risks, I mean, side effect absolutely. risks, I mean, sorry. So there's definitely our side effect risks. And one of the things that at Heroic Hearts we are unbelievably kind of strict on is screening people into the program. So you need to be appropriate for it. One group of people we definitely would never take in or anyone who is in what I would call an acute crisis state so really within that moment you know present suicidal ideation in that uh, moment and really very very distressed that would not be the right person to go in because like I said this is a process you need to be prepared for it you need to kind of get yourself ready to to go and, and do the work you can't do that if you're in a in an acute crisis state the next lot of people are, are basically we don't really understand how these the, there may be drug drug interactions with a lot of the psychiatric medicines that are used commonly for PTSD and 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 
common sort of associated disorders. So people who are on SSRIs, for instance, there is a little bit of work going on to kind of assess the safety there. But I would not recommend anybody do a large dose of psychedelics whilst taking SSRIs. There is a risk that you could develop something um, where basically... Because they're hitting the same receptors. Yeah, so it's all within the serotonin um, system and you can get something called serotonin disorder, which is basically where you get sort of too much activation through the serotonin receptor and that can be really quite quite a nasty thing to develop. So you really should be as clean as you can be from other um, pharmacological drugs, um, particularly other psychiatric pharmacological drugs. And then the other kind of things are it does put some stress on your cardiovascular system. So you do have, um, yeah, some receptors in the heart which um, have, which which will be affected by um, psychedelics. And if you were to say have, uh, you know, particular heart disease or something, the added stress of going through the psychedelic experience could be dangerous. Okay. So, you know, those are sort of the three main things that we would, would screen through. There's many other ones as well. Another one being uh, if you've had um, a psychotic disorder uh, or a psychotic episode, because of the mechanisms of psychosis, there is some risk that you could potentially induce a psychotic disorder. The understanding behind that is still... Yet, yet to be discovered but um at, at this moment in time i think it's not worth the risk that's one of the common worries with uh cannabis use right is that people who are predisposed yes. to being bipolar or or schizophrenic absolutely and that can They've, that can trigger it right? funnily enough cbd is one of the better substances for uh, as an antipsychotic uh, but THC has been linked with the development of psychotic disorders. There's an awful lot of debate on how true that is and um, exactly the mechanisms that that might be. I personally did a lot of work on this in my PhD. Um, and yeah, cannabis can, can certainly be a contributing stressor to the development of psychotic disorders. And it certainly doesn't seem to help in people who have active psychosis who use cannabis uh it doesn't it doesn't doesn't seem to give them a uh, better prognosis put it that way on the sub back on the subject of ayahuasca all right so um you the you know the, the treatment and you were talking about there you talk about peru trips to the jungle and you know extended periods of i think you're talking about 10 to 14 days where you're as part of the, the you know the, the active treatment, the use of ayahuasca while you're so, doing it, right? Ten days? Is no, it? no, 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 not not that long. So okay. the retreats that heroic hearts run are you're you're in Peru for seven days. You're at the retreat center for five, and you take the medicine for three days in a row. Okay, all right. So on that, so the yeah. re- the reason for the question is that is not practical. That is not uh, what's the word. What's the word? Scalable. 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 <laughs> it's not scalable. So no. what does the future look like? Can you synthesize the, the, this the medicine? Is the Can you billion not? dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> so 
<clears throat> there has been an awful lot of movement since I last saw you here. Oh, go on then. <laughs> In how do we deliver it? And what matters and what doesn't matter? So there's a lot of people who think the transient experience, the what you see, the insights you get, all of that part don't matter. They are a side effect of what the drug is actually doing in the body. The Aardvark Group, a sponsor of the podcast, brought you this show today. The Aardvark Group are a hugely experienced defense and security company who develop solutions for post-conflict zones and a complex world. They have been developing and delivering highly impactful technical solutions since 1982 through the deployment of innovative technologies, techniques, services, and people. They've been saving lives and protecting people and assets against the global threat of explosive ordnance for decades. Their equipment and their products and their technologies are developed by operators for operators. They've got a huge proportion of their workforce who are ex-military, and they are massive proponents of the ex-military value within the industry. They answer the needs of states, NGOs, international or regional institutions, and private corporations. The Aardvark Group first became known to myself and to Hauer very early on when I was introduced to the CEO, David St. John Clare, who at that time was putting in significant personal effort to raise money for military charities at the height of the Afghan campaign. The Aardvark Group commits just as much energy as David within the company to support the military community, and this has been demonstrated through the Armed Forces Employee Recognition Scheme Awards. You can find out more about the Aardvark Group at aardvark.group, and you can follow them on social media. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, and they're on Facebook. Simply search for The Aardvark Group and you will find them. I strongly suggest you do, and they will certainly appreciate the follow and the engagement from HOA fans. Aardvark.group. And so there are people who have developed formulations and drugs that do the same thing as psychedelics, but without the psychedelic bit, without the hallucinatory bit, without the, the perceived effect of the drug. Some of those clinical trials, they're all early stage, have worked. Some have completely failed. It's very unclear how much that's important. I personally believe, and from what I have seen, and from the evidence I kind of have available to me, the experience matters. The experience is a huge part of it. Um, and so then it comes down to, okay, well then, how do you create that experience like you say, we can't all go to Peru, right? There's a, there's only so many tribesmen left to sing their ikaros for you. They can't do it for everyone. How do we kind of, how much of that experience is important? And there are people that have said, okay, well, that is going to be important. So we need to keep the length of it. We need to keep these sort of long six, seven, eight-hour experiences, but we're going to do it in a clinic with a psychotherapist. And the psychotherapist is going to be trained to X level in order to be able to give one-on-one -on -one treatment. So maybe that's the model for it. They do that with LSD, right, in the Netherlands. Do they do that with LSD in the Netherlands? Have I seen a trial with that? Some, there's a documentary on it where they're putting people they in the room with psychotherapists. They do all sorts of things in the Netherlands. <laughs> 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 Apparently so. Um, 
Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that, yeah, they have done. Um, I think the def- documented study, they filmed it and they released it as a documentary, maybe. What's the documentary called? I don't know. I might be making okay. it up. Okay. I've definitely seen someone um, on the bed with a psychotherapist and he's, he's, ex- he's having a hallucinogenic experience under the influence of something for a long time. Yeah. Heavy dose of whatever it is. Yeah. And Maybe it's psilocybin. Maybe it's psilocybin. Anyway. It could on. be. So, so psilocybin, is, psilocybin truffles are um, decriminalised in the Netherlands. So people often go there to do legal work with these substances. So, so we, we have programmes that we have looked to go to the Netherlands with UK veterans because that's, that's another way to make it a, 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 bit, a, bit, more, a bit more scalable is to, to go there instead of Peru. But so is so thinking about, so how do we do it? So how much is that psychotherapy part important or not important to it? And that, you know, having the person there because that's a huge cost and a huge thought in terms of a clinical model and how we might deliver this to the people. And then there's other people that say, no, 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 the experience is all very important, but the therapy part isn't. So then you could just kind of go and, and do it in, in your own home, for instance, and you just get sent the, the substance and, and then you do it. And then there are other people that think, yeah, no, it's all important, but actually that, you know, the length of it isn't what's important. So there's another substance called DMT, very, very powerful um, psychedelic and you mentioned it earlier we produce it ourselves yeah right? absolutely and there is a particular form of it called 5-MeO DMT which is um, you know quite pop culturally shown as it you know coming from um, uh, a type of uh, frog or toad I can't remember. Um, and it basically gives this very very short 20 minute but absolutely out of not just out of this world out of this universe experience and so there are companies that are designing that and it's just a 20 minute sort of situation. So then you could go into a clinic and be there for like, go on your lunch break, right? <laughs> See God on your lunch break, go back for the second half of work. And these are all models that are being tried out. They're all being tried out in different ways in all different kind of uh, indications. But I don't think there is any particular answer. How do I think that this lives in our society well i'm not sure it even fits in a western clinical model i think that the healing that is done with these medicines goes beyond that of i am here for x disease and i'm going to treat x disease using y it's beyond that it's about you reconnecting to you and it's about you reconnecting to the people around you and it's about you reconnecting to the world and how those connections allow you to not have that internal conflict where you feel anxiety, where you feel depressed, where you feel dissociated. And by not having that in your life and the way you're living your life, that's where you don't then have mental health disorders and then downstream physical health disorders. So the way I think this lives in society is that we change society. Is, is how is how these drugs work. One of the things we do at Heroic Hearts, and it's a big part of our program, and it's why I'm really, really keen and have been pushing as hard as we all physically can to get the get it over the line with the Charity Commission so we can start fundraising properly and establishing ourselves properly in the UK, is because what we do in the US particularly, 
Everyone who goes through the program goes through as a group. You meet your group in the preparation sessions. You learn all about <coughs> them. They're all in, you know, veterans from all different walks of, of the military. And you're guaranteed that you're going to have similarities and, and uh, complete differences from those people. But you will go through that process together. You will listen to each other. You will learn from each other. And you will heal together as a team. And when you come out of that experience, you'll go through the integration sessions together. And then you will join what is the Heroic Hearts alumni. And that is a group and a network of people who've been through the same situation who wake up on a Tuesday morning feeling shitty and, you know, oh my God, I'm back in that place and I can't cope and da da da. And they can message those people who went through that experience with them. And it's a community and a support group and a support network that now exists quite strongly in the US among the veterans who've been through this program to support each other and be there for each other. And one other thing that we do in the US is we now have li linked up with an organization called the Hope Project. The Hope Project is designed for um, the families, mostly um, the, the partners, the wives of, of military veterans who have been um, either unfortunately lost their lives or have been seriously injured or have come back with quite serious mental health problems that has undoubtedly impacted the life, uh, lives and well-being of the families of those veterans. So we have a program with the Hope Project where we put their, we send their wives through psychedelic um, programs. So what we're now getting is not only a veteran who's coming back, who's rediscovered a connection with themselves, rediscovered how to recognize themselves, appreciate themselves, potentially love themselves, feel all of the, you know, emotions and get this real genuine healing from the mental health disorders and then downstream physical health disorders that they've been struggling from. Going back into a family unit, that has a huge positive impact on their wife and their children. You then have children who are now growing up with parents who are more tuned into them, listening to them, engaging with them. What does that mean? It means that those children are now much less likely to go on and develop their own mental health disorders. And it kind of starts to spread out. So from that family, you now get this sort of, uh, light that comes in from somebody going and doing this work from getting this insight from having this sort of psychedelic experience that starts to spread into to their families and their communities and it's that community that then allows this to be sustainable and a sustainable model unfortunately that isn't actually how we live our lives these days we live in very very secluded and closed off ways it's why i think many people develop PTSD in the absence of the military, not in the presence of the military, um, because you lose that structure, because you lose that network, you lose that support network, certainly. And so by how do we make these things work in society? Well, we need to first look at society. Do we have the support networks in society to put people through these psychedelic medicines where they can go back and have these groups around them where they can talk about their experiences, talk about their integra 
refractory kind of processes that they've gone through. And then I think we can sort of take these substances however. I'd like to just talk about something slightly sidelined. Maybe this will resonate with you, uh, being a, a proud Welshman and, and potentially of, of Celtic heritage. I, <laughs> I think it's quite obvious. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly right. So when we... People always say to me, are these things safe? You know, you, you know you're going to send these people to Peru, the middle of Peru, to the Amazon jungle to take unregulated drugs, you know, with some, like, primitive people. What are you doing? And you will think, well, actually, no. These tribes, A, are outstanding examples of, of humanity, right? You know, these people live in incredible communities that I think we would do, we would do well to look back and kind of... Why? Just the way that they, they are in, in families and in communities. You know, whereas we... I can't, you know, I haven't seen my parents for months. <laughs> like, we we live in these, we kind of pull ourselves away, and, but we don't think they're, we don't think those relationships are important. They're still very connected then. Very okay, connected. Yeah, 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 yeah. With themselves and with the world around them. But they have been using these medicines for 5,000 years down there, more probably. And these maestros, these shamans who, who lead these ceremonies, you know, they've taken people through these ceremonies, you know, probably thousands in their lifetimes. That's thousands of different permutations of, of, of opportunities for something to go wrong or something to go right or something to happen that these people have seen. They have incredible knowledge and wisdom that we do not have. We do not have about ourselves, our own psyche, about how we heal that psyche our modern you know psychiatry is knows nothing compared to what these people know now that's not to say that for some reason these people have some magical gift that the rest of us have not been blessed with i firmly believe that we probably were using psychedelic substances in you know druids you know back on uh you know on 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 the lands here and across northern europe Certainly, we're probably using psilocybin mushrooms that are grow all over this country in probably not dissimilar practices. And we had that as part of our culture and part of the way that we healed ourselves and lived as communities. Now, we've stripped all that away with the sort of advent of Christianity and the way that sort of modern medicine works. But I think we would do well to remember that this is not some kind of obscure thing that's happening over there in the Amazon. This was probably happening and part of our daily lives and communities a couple of thousand years ago. It's now gone, but we have this opportunity to perhaps uncover it and rediscover it, maybe in our own way, in a way that also means something to us and who we are and who our ancestry is. Because I think, you know, what your ancestry is and, and all the rest of it, it's very easy to sort of think that it's, you know, a bit, of a, a bit of a side interest. But actually, who you are and who the fabric of who you are and where you came from, funnily enough, actually does mean something. It does mean something to you and your psyche. And if you, if you cut it away and strip it away, like when you 
leave the military, right? Because when you're in the military, you, you have uh, a framework of who you are and your purpose and what your job role is, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when, when we choose to strip away the meaning behind who we are and the fabric of who we are, then um, it seems to have very bad effects on our mental health. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, techno- yeah. Te- you know, techno- I think uh, technology, very evident over the last five, uh, 10, 15 years, but in general, you know, over the last what, 400 years, technology has moved the human race in such a rapid way on, down a path that moves us away from all that mm-hmm. interconnectedness. You know, the, the human side of us, the ancestral side of us, moved us away faster. I'm not saying move is a bad thing, move is away faster than we have been able to evolve with it. Our brains, our bodies have been able to evolve mm-hmm. with it, which I think has created loads of problems. I think, it's, I think it's probably one of the reasons we see, we seem to see a lot of, a lot more uh, mental ill health and seems to have been evident in the past. Not that we understood it as well in the past, but um, just, just to a couple of things. Are you aware of a guy called Graham Hancock? He made the documentary Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix. Uh, he's all about ancestry, and he believes he believes and has evidence to prove, and well, there is evidence to prove that he brings to bear that there was a basically a forgotten civilization that mm-hmm. we don't know about mm-hmm. long time before. Yeah, we I think that the likelihood we've found everything that ever existed is pretty pretty small. <laughs> so he uh, he uh, didn't realize, but he's a big advocate of psychedelics for for he he believes in. He believes myths and hymns have a, there's something about them that they should be paying mm-hmm. attention to. And part of that is where do those come from? Some of the, some of the stories are, they have, there's something real embedded in them, but there's messages embedded in them and something he thinks psychedelics played a big part in our um, evolution. But the point is, mm-hmm. he's a big proponent of, um, yeah, psychedelic use and treatment of mental ill health and, and in veterans. And he doesn't, he's in Bath. I didn't realise he still lived in the UK. He won't be a great one to connect with. I only discovered mm. it recently. I thought, I need to tell you and yeah. Keith about that. Now, last question if I can. Are there any other, oh, hang on, before the last, last question. So are there any any other countries in the world that you're aware of that that have uh, have psychedelic medicines baked into their health and healthcare and medicine in a way that you wish we could have? Mm, no. <laughs> Not even in the Far East anywhere there? Because China are a bit funky with uh, their medicinal practices, aren't they? No, oh, no, look no. at the face. <laughs> <They're> Not, <laughs> China is, is, is very... Um, not positive around psychoactive really? substances. Yeah. Yeah. Many, it's very conservative in terms of... You're saying that like it should be obvious to me. I feel like no, I'm no, missing no, no. a trick here. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's... it's um, Okay, interesting. Communist country. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're not particularly um, in, you know, behind this. In terms of, of any countries that I think... No, as I say, I think the, the people that, that use it best are, are indigenous peoples who have been allowed to kind of keep those practices alive. We've been sort of traditionally made to think that altering consciousness is somehow wrong, right? Um, be that sort of morally or, or, or whatever. But I think getting back comfortable with altering consciousness is, is interesting the way I think, you know, you, you talk there about about your uh, about the, that chap sort of saying he thinks there's something in 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 the sort of mysticalness of this. Oh, I I completely agree. When I first came to this work, 
I was a proper hardcore neuroscientist, right? All I care about are synapses and <laughs> uh, neurotransmitters. The one thing I have been humbled by in this whole experience is the fact that there is some component of magic that, that exists in all of When this. did you first think that? When did that first... Is there a, is there a specific moment or a, a, a time where that popped in your head and thought, hang on a minute, I should be paying attention to this? Well, just literally the maths. It was just falling out of the statistics mm. that there appears to be a component behind people engaging in on a sort of mystical experience level that allows them to heal from this. And I think the reason for a lot of that is is such, right? We have these internal stories that we have about ourselves. A lot of those stories are woven when we are small children. We learn to walk and talk and, you know, feed ourselves and stuff by the age of three, four years old. Why would we not also, during that point learn to attach to other human beings emotionally regulate ourselves you know and emotionally regulate ourselves in terms of our perception of dangers and fears that all happens when we are small small tiny babies and children and that story that narrative that blueprint is what we take with us for the rest of our lives and it is the context of which it's the context and the toolbox with which we then approach everything that ever happens to us. So a classic case of somebody who gets PTSD in the military probably had a situation in their younger childhood. Maybe they had they were not given enough attention. They were not given the care that they needed as a child. They then develop a whole bunch of internal tools with which they deal with that abandonment. They deal with... They self-preserve against the fear of being a three-year-old who doesn't know mummy's going to come and, they, and look after them when there could be a tiger next door. And that same network, that same blueprint, that, those same tools are then applied when they have you know, joined the military further down the line and they're in various combat situations that induce that same stress. They then use those tools, which are the tools that a frightened little three-year-old came up with, to deal with those problems. And then they come out of the military, they lose the support, and then any kind of progress, you know, uh, occurrences that, that reintroduce that stress, they're going to start using that toolbox again, which is disordered and not contextual for the tools they need now as a sort of 30 year old adult or something to say and that's where you get this dysfunction and that's where you get post-traumatic stress disorder and all the other symptomology that we've spoken about now how are you going to heal that when you think about what it really is well you need to rewrite your blueprint right you need to at some point go in there and recode what you've done now how do you do that Psychedelics, in my mind, are a catalyst for you to go in and rewrite that blueprint. Some people are able to achieve that by doing long distance marathons or breath work or other such things. But for a lot of people, they haven't really been speaking to them. They've been not, not just not speaking to themselves. They've been actively ignoring themselves for years and just living in this horrible you know narrative that they have i am this person i am x i am y whereas if you can find a way 
using psychedelics, using breath work, using meditation, using running, using whatever, to go in and speak to the unconscious parts of ourselves that holds this narrative and rewrite some of those tools. And maybe you'll need a therapist to help you because some of those tools are so broken or so misaligned that you need someone to help you show you what those tools should look like. But a lot of the time, actually, as human beings, we're quite good at adapting to what we actually need to survive. And that's where I think the magic is. Mm -hmm. That ability to speak to the unconscious sometimes needs a level of belief. You need to be able to believe you can do it. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on the on the on the side that though the the hallucination you mentioned earlier that some people think that the hallucinations may not be important, but of of my experiences, um, I don't I don't think the benefit would have been there if I hadn't have had the visuals. If I'm going to call them that, yeah, the, the the hallucinogenic side of things, which sort of presented the mathematics to me in a way mm -hmm. and said okay mm -hmm. the, not the mathematics you know put, pointing my brain towards the thought that should be having bring myself to my own conscious conclusion of of uh which which put me into a, a better state than what i was before them you know i don't want to go into any more detail on that on, on air uh, <laughs> but um yeah what have we not covered that you wanted to cover not that you came in here with a list mind <laughs> uh, we came in you with a blank slate. I think we've well, I think we've we've generally kind of chatted about it. I guess the one thing I would I would <clears> like <throat> to sort of come to is, you know, this idea of these medicines are here. They're coming. They are going to be licensed in various different forms in the coming years. I really hope now we're kind of coming to a place of people not initially reacting the, to this as, oh my God, illegal drugs, and all of the stigmatism that comes with that. And that actually we look at these for what they are, very, very useful tools. And they're not only useful tools for kind of fixing these problems, but I think they're very, very useful tools for helping us understand how those problems started, right? By understanding how you fix something, you can kind of understand potentially how it got broken. And I think that we are seeing with psychedelics a kind of ability to understand how people are ending up in, in the states that we see people presenting to heroic hearts as, as very disconnected human beings. Um... So yeah, so I, I would like people to kind of start reducing the stigma around, uh, around the drugs, definitely. And I would like to see the military community in this country engaging more. In the US, it really is. As I say, I was at this conference at this huge dinner with people getting up from all different arms and giving these incredibly American speeches at great length and emotion about psychedelics. But the feeling was, this is happening. I have sat down with numerous members of the VA and spoken about this. I have seen people in the British military talking about this. I have seen communications going around internally about this. I'd now like to see 
people talking about it. I would like to see, you know, maybe more senior people kind of saying, well, actually, what is this? And maybe them, like I just said previously, using this as an opportunity to understand, okay, well, if that's how we're healing people, maybe can we stop them breaking? Maybe can we talk to people who are coming into the military? Maybe maybe let's start by talking to young officers. Maybe let's start at Sandhurst, right? Let's speak to young officers about PTSD, about what PTSD looks like, about how, what, you know, what are the um, risk factors for it? And so that they can start considering that as the sort of custodians of their platoons, they can take some ownership over the mental health of, 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 of their soldiers so that we can prevent people ever needing this medicine. Very yeah. good. What a perfect way to end. Grace, it's been a pleasure. An absolute pleasure. As always, Heroic yeah. Hearts, uh, what's the website? Um, Heroic Hearts Project in the US and then Heroic, Heroic Hearts UK in the UK. Fingers crossed Heroic Hearts UK will be getting a charity number very, very soon. And then we will hopefully be able to discuss more uh, once that happens, because we then would like to do as much of a sort of fundraise and awareness drive as we can in this country and really get a bit of uh, a movement for, for veterans here who need this healing and we can provide it for them and provide that community and that support for them. Yeah, excellent. I think it's the most important work going on now when it comes to uh, when it comes to um, reducing the impacts of PTSD and mental health, not just on a veteran population, but on 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 you know society in general. So um, keep keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome work. Thank you. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H Hour patron? H Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content there are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the h hour patrons so before this podcast was recorded i recorded an exclusive q a a shorter interview structured around eight questions all the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand and that interview is online now for patrons that happens every time patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else they get advanced viewing of the episodes and you also get other perks and bonuses all of the information is on charliecharlie1.com just hit the menu item become a patron it'll show you everything there including access to the h hour discord community and private patron only channels on there so go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item become a patron easy peasy thank you for being a supporter subscribe to the channel and i will catch you on the next episode